This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. On today's episode, Eric Jones and Kenton Clymer interview Bradley Simpson, and we discuss genocide, justice, and the ongoing search for truth and accountability in 1965-66 Indonesian mass killings. Welcome to another edition of Southeast Asia Crossroads. Uh, I'm your host, Eric Jones, and uh, with me is uh, Brad Simpson. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. And also in, in studio is uh, Kenton Clymer, uh, specialist, uh, uh, also hear a familiar voice on the podcast occasionally. Uh, pleasure to be here, Eric. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for having us in. Um, Brad gave us a, a, a great talk today on some of his new research and uh, his role in some of the declassification uh, in the, around the events of, of 1965 and its memorialization. So um, for our listeners, give us a, give us a setting of, of, of time and place. What happens in 65 that is, that is so pivotal in Indonesian history? So in 1965, Indonesia underwent one of the most dramatic and important events of its modern history. <clears throat> and my talk today was an attempt to explore the public debates over the meaning of these events and the way that they point to some of the challenges that Indonesian democracy faces in confronting its own past, a set of challenges that I think that many Americans would find familiar given our own difficulties in confronting difficult pasts with regards to slavery and, and many other uh, less than savory aspects of our own history. <clears throat> so on the evening of September 30th, 1965, a group called the September 30th Movement uh, abducted and, and later killed six high-ranking members of the Indonesian Army General Staff, purportedly to help head off a coup by a uh, what they called a council of generals that they thought was or argued was intending to overthrow the country and and displace the Indonesian president, Sukarno. Um, this group was headed up by two high-ranking members of the Indonesian Communist Party working with a number of middle-ranking Indonesian army officers. The movement very quickly collapsed. It was routed by Indonesian army officers under the command of a then little-known general named Suharto who then launched a counter-coup and used this movement as a justification for waging a campaign of extermination against the Indonesian Communist Party, otherwise known as the PKI, which at the time was the largest communist party in the world outside of the Soviet bloc, <clears throat> numbering approximately three million members and several million more in affiliate organizations that were uh, organized peasants and, and women and workers and, and other groups in Indonesia. Between October of 1965 and March of 1966, the Indonesian army, working with paramilitary allies from student organizations, Islamic organizations, a variety of, of uh, militias, informal militias, sort of rent-a-thug groups, uh, killed somewhere in the neighborhood of half a million unarmed civilians. Uh, this was mostly close quarters killing. Many of these civilians were 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 captured, and and that's even the uh, a conservative estimate. Like it's pretty, we're pretty sure that at least half a million. Yeah, and it's difficult to to get precise numbers of 
the exact number of people who were killed because there <clears throat> isn't very good data on, yeah. on Indonesia's population at the time. But the best scholarly estimates are that somewhere in the neighborhood of half a million people were yeah. killed and another million or so were imprisoned in the wake of these killings in 1965 and 1966. The killings were spread across the archipelago but were most intense in the island of Java, uh, the island of Sumatra, and the island of Bali, um, where the bulk of the killings took place and where the Indonesian Communist Party had been strongest. Now, these killings were the product of and grew out of larger, deeper social conflicts between the Indonesian Communist Party and the two other main political forces in the country, the uh, Indonesian army and the Islamic community, uh, which was politically politically opposed to the communists, not just ideologically, but because these groups viewed the Communist Party as a threat to their own power. Uh, so, for example, the Indonesian Communist Party had supported the rapid implementation of land reform in Indonesia in the early 1960s that would have struck local Islamic organizations quite hard because they were often large landowners in the areas where they were where they were strong. And so the Muslim organizations as well as the army had great reason to fear the Communist Party and to want to try and eliminate them and eliminate their power in order to prevent them uh, from from threatening their own hold on power in Indonesia. Uh, the U.S., for its part, uh, had been deeply involved in supporting the army as a counterweight to the Indonesian Communist Party since the late 1950s, and in fact had been providing military training and assistance to the army uh, in the form of weapon sales, the training of Indonesian officers and police, the creation of a paramilitary police force in Indonesia, uh, which was modeled on on American counterinsurgency uh, units that were then fighting in Vietnam. Um, and the Indonesian army and its military doctrines, which have been developed by, by a high-ranking Indonesian general named Nasution, uh, in many ways paralleled the emergence of America's own, the United States' own counterinsurgency thinking in the 1960s. And so this was an anti-communist armed forces establishment that, that had a lot of sympathy for the United States, uh, even though uh, they were still strongly nationalistic. And during this period, the United States uh, did whatever it could to try and sort of fortify the army's courage and, and encourage it to confront the Indonesian Communist Party and to try and rein in Sukarno at a moment when he was taking an increasingly radical stance in terms of Indonesian foreign policy, and as well as, as in terms of uh, confronting American interests in the country, both political and economic. So rather infamously, this is Time Magazine reports this, is, of course, is the best news in Asia for years or something like that is the quote, um, which gives you a, a, gives us maybe a sense of, of, what the, of what the context is for thinking about this. And again, we can, we can argue, and I think your research points to, of what we, what we thought we knew and what we now know, that we, at least the, the embassies knew uh, uh, at the at the time, but uh, for for maybe both of you, what is the what is the U.S. Um, its role in Southeast Asia before 1965 and its relationships with its relationship with Indonesia before the 30th of September? Maybe Kenton, you could talk about the rest of Southeast Asia, and I could touch on Indonesia. Well, I was just going to say, in the general sense, of course. Uh, 
Vietnam is going uh, is heating up in 1965, and uh, the United States was not having uh, any great victories. Um, and uh, so what happened in Indonesia seemed to the Johnson administration as a kind of a breath of fresh air. In a sense, they had won right. a victory there. The Communist Party was was being uh, defeated. With no um, American loss of life. Right, like right. With inv- you just And so they were, they were yeah. actually, I think, publicly quite quiet about it, but, but certainly uh, happy with the way things were going there. Uh, and in terms of the rest of Southeast Asia, this was the Cold War still. Uh, the Americans are still engaged in... Uh, Anti-communist activities across the uh, across the region, and hoping to to keep uh, communism under control uh, throughout the region. I think. Yeah, at the time, the Indonesian army had a somewhat ambivalent relationship with the United States because the U.S. had helped to provoke a civil war in Indonesia less than a decade earlier, <clears throat> fearing that the Indonesian Communist Party was growing too powerful. Uh, the CIA and and the Eisenhower administration actually supported a regional rebellion of, of dissident colonels who were trying to break the country apart and and fought a civil war in order to try and accomplish this. Uh, those forces, which were backed ex- extensively by the U.S. in one of the largest covert operations uh, it conducted during the entire Cold War, were decisively defeated. And in the aftermath, the U.S. had to try and repair its relations with the Indonesian army very which public was, humiliation as yeah, well, yeah. Which was, you know, after a, an American uh, pilot was was captured by by the Indonesian government on a bombing raid over Ambon, uh, and in the wake of this, the U.S. government had to try and repair its relations with the army, which it realized was the the most important anti-communist force in the country, and so they very determinedly focused their 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 energy on trying to cultivate the army as an anti-communist force. And later, through the use of covert operations, began suggesting in every possible way that if the army decided to move against Sukarno, and especially against the Indonesian Communist Party, that they would enjoy American support. The problem, as American officials realized, was that the Indonesian army was still very nationalistic. And while its, while its goals in many ways overlapped with those of the United States, uh, they were not synonymous. And so the Indonesian army still desired to exploit American concern with what was happening in Indonesia to maximize their own gain from this situation. And, and during this period, when the Indonesian army with, with American support is massacring hundreds of thousands of communists, they're, they're simultaneously making these extravagant demands of, of American officials for military equipment and hundreds of millions of dollars in economic assistance and suggesting to the U.S. Embassy uh, that they are helping to pull the Americans' chestnuts out of the fire in Southeast Asia and that they should be rewarded for this. As the U.S. Ambassador to Indonesia, Marshall Green, <clears throat> put it at one point, all the Indonesian generals want to know is how much is it worth? How much is it worth for us? Uh, how much? Let me back up. All the Indonesian generals want to know is how much is it worth to us for them to smash the PKI and thereby save much of Southeast Asia from communism. Um, and so for them, this was a this was something that they were proud of and something they thought the U.S. should reward them for. Whereas the United States recognized that even after crushing the Indonesian Communist Party, that there were many issues on which their interests actually sharply diverged from those of the Indonesian army. The, I think the, the message is, seems to be clear to the, am I right in saying to the, the Indonesian military leaders that should there be a, 
should there be an overthrow, you can expect United States support for that, and then um, and then maybe plans initiated. Uh, I like the the document you showed uh, from the UK, where like that very you know uh, prescient uh, that you know uh, if we could lure the PKI into uh, a coup, uh, if we could get them to do something foolhardy like that, we would have a pretext for. Um, uh, or there is, uh, are there other plans on the table? What do are they? Do you think that uh, Western plan? Uh, um, Military and political planners are they uh, to what to what extent are they seeding these ideas or or uh, capturing ones that were already out there? Well, the U.S. had had similar hopes as late as 1959 in the wake of this failed rebellion in Indonesia that the U.S. had become involved in. So the Eisenhower administration <clears throat> passed a National Security Council resolution or or authored a National Security Council study which suggested that U.S. policy in Indonesia should aim to drive uh, the Indonesian Communist Party into revolt and provide the army with an excuse to crack down on it and and rescue the country in in mm-hmm. sort of its own self-interest. And so it's clear that that as early as 1960, the the long-term goal of U.S. policy was to try and encourage an armed clash between the Indonesian Armed Forces and the Indonesian Communist Party in the expectation that the unarmed Communist Party would be defeated. In the fall of 1964, this broad vision was given more teeth when the CIA uh, proposed and was granted an expansion of its covert operations in Indonesia with the more explicit goal of using funds and propaganda to try and create a more direct clash between the army and the PKI in the hopes that the PKI could be lured into uh, making the kind of political mistake and, and engaging in the kind of provocative behavior that would justify the army crushing them with military force. And so therefore we see the kinds of comments by the British Embassy in Indonesia by the U.S. Ambassador to uh, Indonesia, Howard Jones, uh, at the time, suggesting that from the perspective of the United States, the best outcome in Indonesia would be a failed communist coup attempt, which would provide the army with the pretext for destroying communism in Indonesia and taking power from, from Sukarno. And this is precisely what happened in the fall of 1965. This is not at all to say that the U.S. was was in any way responsible for the events of 1965, merely that the goal of U.S. covert operations was to try and encourage the type of political clash which eventually resulted in the September 30th movement and the massacres that followed. Um, And I think that this is often how covert operations work. Uh, the goals of the U.S. or the Central Intelligence Agency, which are which are the same, are, are often excessively ambitious. Many of these covert operations fail to produce the desired results. Uh, and because the U.S. had very limited options in Indonesia, uh, the best that it could hope for was to try and stir up trouble with the use of propaganda and by providing political signals to its allies that if they decided to move, that the United States would stand firmly in their corner. Um, but many Americans were actually very pessimistic in the fall of 1965 that they would be able to arrest uh, this this direction of events, and they were actually quite surprised uh, when the September 30th movement happened. Uh, and and 
very determined to take advantage of what they saw as a unique opportunity uh, to use this moment to encourage the army to finish off the PKI once and for all. Yeah, and so it seems like they had chosen a something that would at least appear or feel more organic to the, the, the I'm thinking about attempts to ideas of, of assassinating Sukarno, which were which were you know, we know in the family jewels uh, you know papers that comes out that that, that is firm plans are never put into action, but it's at least talked about. But uh, it seems like they cited on this uh, the, the something that's more a natural outcome of, of the ambitions of the Indonesian military. Uh, Indonesia has, a, has this incredible massacre. And uh, the prison camps, I think, are something that is uh, uh, also perhaps understudied in, the, in our focus. How many, how many people end up, you said a million? Um, how, how widespread and uh, across Indonesia are these prison camps and who's in them? Yeah, the best estimates are that that upwards of one million Indonesians were arrested in the aftermath of the 1965 and 66 killings, and they were they were spread across several dozen uh, prison encampments around the archipelago. Some of them quite informal. They were sort of holding holding places for for prisoners who were going to be executed or who were going to be put into into more long term confinement. Um, Many hundreds of thousands of these uh, prisoners were were released in fairly short order, but but upwards of two hundred thousand continued to be held uh, through the the mid nineteen seventies. Um, many of these were actual members of the Indonesian Communist Party, uh, but but many thousands were teachers, they were students, they were members of the Indonesian Women's Organization, which was known as Garwani uh, at the time. Uh, they were artists. Uh, they were dissidents. They were pretty much anyone uh, who held political views that could be seen as in any way uh, leftward leaning and perhaps a threat to the political power of the Indonesian army. Uh, and so, and so, in fact, um, <clears throat> many of these uh, political prisoners. Actually, let me back up a sec. So, um, one of the most famous of these political prisoners is the. Uh, Indonesian novelist Pramudia Anatotur, who was held on Buru Island, which became sort of infamous in Indonesia and elsewhere uh, for the harshness of the conditions under which prisoners were held, forced to work to clear the land and and to grow food for the army and the like. Um, and and prison conditions in Indonesia and the and the political imprisonment of hundreds of thousands of of alleged Communist Party members actually became one of the chief. Uh, criticisms of Indonesia by the emerging human rights movement in the late 1960s and early 1970s. Um, and the Indonesian army justified the imprisonment of these tens of thousands of, of Indonesians as a matter of national security, uh, but clearly this also provided lots of ammunition for, for critics outside of Indonesia who held up the plight of Indonesian political prisoners as a demonstration of the authoritarian nature of the Soharto regime and as a symbol of the kind of Faustian bargain that the West had entered into when it backed the regime in its campaign of mass murder against the Communist Party in the name of anti-communism.
so what what is the national narrative in Indonesia in the decades that follow the massacre? What how is how is it talked about, and how can it be talked about? Well, for thirty two years there was one narrative in Indonesia, and that narrative held that the Indonesian Communist Party was the dalang or puppet master, which had orchestrated the entirety of events. And that in the aftermath, and, and the, the and the, the the communist party as a, as a whole, like yeah, right, like the that masses, the communist party as yeah. a whole was responsible for these events. Yeah. That they had murdered the generals with great brutality. That members of the Indonesian women's organization Gerwani had sexually mutilated the generals and and conducted an orgy uh, with their corpses and and just horrific stuff, which was used to justify the political persecution of the Indonesian women's movement and the demonization of, of communism in Indonesia as a sort of alien force that needed to be excised from the body politic. Um, in the years afterwards, uh, the Indonesian government produced a propaganda film which was shown every year on the anniversary of the September 30th movement, uh, which portrayed the Communist Party as uniquely bloodthirsty and deserving of its fate at the hands of an enraged and aroused population which rescued the nation from communism uh, at a moment of national peril. And this was the the story that was drummed into an entire generation of Indonesians for 32 years with no opportunity for a counter-narrative to develop. In fact, anyone who inside of Indonesia criticized the government for human rights abuses or suggested that there should be greater truth-telling or accountability for the events of 1965 uh, was quickly tarred as a communist or as trying to uh, revive communism in Indonesia uh, and easily dismissed or, or imprisoned or, or worse. Things began to change a little bit after Suharto was ousted from power in May of 1998. The 20th anniversary is coming up just next month. And in the wake of this, um, there was a very slow and... and um, significant thaw uh, in that the Indonesian government, the civilian governments after Suharto was was ousted, uh, began to slowly undo some of the harshest measures that Suharto had undertaken uh, after the September 30th movement, such as uh, relaxing the ban on the Indonesian Communist Party, uh, relaxing some of the measures that that officially discriminated against uh, alleged former Communist Party members or former political prisoners, uh, and suggesting that it was open to at least beginning a national discussion about what had happened in 1965. Uh, This included uh, very tentative efforts to revise some of the national history textbooks uh, and to make it possible to Uh, at least allude to other narratives of what had happened in 1965 without necessarily specifically addressing uh, the killings themselves. Mm. Could I uh, ask a question? Uh, Leaving aside uh, all of the propaganda surrounding the way the September 30th movement has been portrayed and so forth, uh, to what extent were, in fact, communists involved in the actual events of September 30th? Well, the best research we have has been conducted by historian John Rusa, Uh, who wrote a very important book called A Pretext for Mass Murder, in which he, I think, makes a very persuasive case that the September 30th movement was planned by uh, the two highest-ranking members of the Indonesian Communist Party, uh, and that they worked with a group of middle-ranking Indonesian army officers to carry out the movement. Now, we have to remember that in 
1965, both the army and the Indonesian Communist Party were riddled with infiltrators and spies. Uh, and so the chairman of the Indonesian Communist Party, a man named Aidit, uh, didn't trust his own party members to keep secrets. And so he held the secret of the movement uh, from virtually the entire Politburo and all of the membership of the party so that only two other people knew. Um, and likewise, the uh, Indonesian army officers that they worked with were part of an institution that was also deeply penetrated by the Indonesian Communist Party. And so each side uh, really thought that the other was more competent and aware of what was happening than they really were, which is one reason why the movement collapsed so quickly under the weight of its own uh, poor planning and clumsiness. Uh, but it does suggest <coughs> something that was actually very important, which is that the overwhelming majority of the membership of the Indonesian Communist Party uh, was neither involved nor aware of the movement. Uh, yeah, I, I was going to say your some of your some of your records that you've declassified. What would the you have consular officials right that are that are that are reporting what the what the, what knowledge is on the grounds? Yeah. Yeah. So when the movement first emerged and the generals were killed in the fall of 1965, um, U.S. officials actually got the story somewhat right. In the end of October, the State Department and later the CIA produced its first assessments of the September 30th movement in which they concluded that the movement was planned and carried out by a few high-ranking members of the Indonesian Communist Party, but that the bulk of the membership was not involved or aware of what was happening. Um, consular reporting or reports from, from U.S. consular and embassy officials confirm this assessment. Uh, I found documents from this collection that we recently declassified and made public in which American officials are speaking to Western diplomats and journalists who have been traveling around the country and interviewing high-ranking Communist Party members in other cities who were completely unaware of the existence of the September 30th movement until after it had already announced itself and didn't know what its goals were or even what stance the Indonesian Communist Party should take toward it uh, because they had no reason to believe that the PKI was actually involved. And this suggests, I think, rather conclusively that the Indonesian Communist Party as an institution was not involved in the September 30th movement and its civilian membership was utterly unaware of anything that was happening. And the fact that the Indonesian army, uh, with the support of the United States, went ahead and conducted a campaign of mass murder against the very same civilian members of this political party, knowing full well that they were not involved in the movement itself, is a fairly damning indictment, not just of the army's actions, but of American policy. Right. They they knew full well that the most of the most of the victims that in uh, of the killing and in the prison camps had had nothing to do with the uh, the the. I'm, I'm thinking of. The, the U.S. involvement in the rest of Southeast Asia and, and combating communism, and it, you know, the uh, the the sense that this is an opportunity that can't be lost. That, you know, if the uh, the the purge uh, needs to needs to be needs to be thorough, needs to be deep, so as to uh, uh, continue this momentum. You don't want to second Vietnam into China on your hands, right? I mean, is there to what role? Kenton, do you think the uh, the rest of the Southeast Asian context is playing into the 
the thinkers uh, on American foreign policy towards Indonesia? Well, the uh, United States had uh, clearly attempted to mitigate um, communist influence. They had, in, in fact, in Cambodia, had, had been involved in supporting coups against uh, Sihanouk. Um, they were careful in uh, Burma. That was a little bit different because uh, there the leadership uh, became quite isolationist and the Americans finally settled on neutrality is better than uh, communism. Um, so I think, uh, I mean, Indonesia is the largest uh, country in Southeast Asia in terms of population. I think the Americans were, were very concerned about uh, what was happening there, as, as Brad has suggested. Uh, and it is part of a larger uh, regional narrative in terms of uh, trying to prevent the spread of communism throughout the region. There's, uh, Brad, one of the interesting parts of your your discussion was the the battle for public memory over over the massacre after 98. Can you, can you tell us a bit about um, maybe some start with the victims' organizations? So in sort of 98, the, the dictatorship falls and, uh, of, of Suharto, and suddenly they're able to talk about these things in a way that they weren't um, before. So take us through some of that. What, what are some of the things that unfold after this, this, this new opening? Well, initially... In the aftermath of Suharto's ouster, a number of victims' rights organizations began to emerge uh, that are attempting to both recover the memory of some of the victims and survivors of 1965 and 1966, as well as to engage in public advocacy uh, to restore the good name of the victims, uh, to demand accountability from the Indonesian government, for the mass murders and imprisonment that took place in the name of of anti-communism, as well as to restore uh, the victims to a place in in the body politic as as citizens of Indonesia and not as communists who uh, deserve to be cast out of, of national life. And so a number of organizations formed in the aftermath of Suharto's ouster uh, such as the Foundation for Research uh, for into Victims of the 1965 and 1966 killings uh, that carried out interviews. They published some of their findings in Indonesia, uh, and they also began to exhume some of the mass graves uh, that contained the remains of, of victims of the 1965 and 1966 killings. Now, this, of course, was tremendously controversial, and occasioned a great backlash, not just on the part of the Indonesian armed forces, uh, who were still bitterly opposed to any revision of the uh, story of the 1965 and 66 events in the September 30th movement that that portrayed them as heroes and, and saviors of the nation. So they were very reluctant to encourage a national reckoning with these killings and with the events of September 30th, 1965, that cast into question the morality of what they had done. And so the Army, along with a number of other organizations and institutions, uh, including Islamic organizations whose members had played a role in the killings in 1965 and 1966, uh, bitterly attacked some of these uh, victims' rights and human rights organizations who were calling for truth and accountability and sometimes literally attacked them uh, as they were attempting to uh, give voice to victims and survivors. Why was the why was the response of Islamic groups in Indonesia so strong and stern against this new revision? 
Well, a number of Islamic organizations uh, had militias that played an important role in the mass killings in 1965 and 1966, in part because uh, the the several of the most important Islamic organizations were bitter political enemies of the PKI and viewed them as as both a religious threat as well as a political threat to their own to their own role in the in the body politic. After the killings. Many of these Islamic organizations thought that they would be rewarded by the new dictator Suharto for having helped to carry out the mass murders, uh, but Suharto himself was fearful of unleashing the power of political Islam, and so he ended up um, shunting most of these organizations to the side and, and at times attempting to use them for his own political purposes, but never letting them get too close to power because the Indonesian army itself was deeply suspicious of and untrusting of Islamic organizations that they thought were interested in trying to turn Indonesia into an Islamic state. Now, after 1998, when Suharto was overthrown, many of these Islamic organizations feared that revisiting the 1965 and 66 killings would call into question their own heroic narrative about uh, the rescue of the nation from the hands of the Communist Party that was carried out with the assistance of, of their own members. The second Indonesian president after Suharto, um, a man named Abdurrahman Wahid, who is the former head of the largest Islamic organization in Indonesia, actually issued a public apology uh, for the killings and suggested that, that Muslims needed to revisit uh, their role in these events, um, and that this was something that they should maybe not be so proud of, and he was bitterly criticized for doing so. Uh, subsequent presidents have, have not gone that far uh, to criticize uh, the role of the army or, or Islamic organizations, uh, but there has been a great reluctance among many Muslim organizations to revisit these killings uh, because they fear that this would call into question their role in contemporary Indonesian life today, where they portray themselves as the defenders of traditional morality, uh, as a bulwark against secularizing influences, uh, as opponents of women's rights organizations, of human rights organizations, of gays and lesbians, and others who they argue are undermining traditional morality and sort of degrading Indonesia with Western influences. Several... Several events, the Indonesian People's Tribunal, uh, Komnas Ham, looked into, looked into the killings uh, themselves. What, what did they find and what new narratives came out of uh, those investigations? So there have been a number of public and private investigations into the 1965 and 1966 killings. Some of these, of course, have been undertaken by, by academic scholars not just Western scholars, but a young generation of Indonesian scholars who have engaged in a quite heroic and and um, who have engaged in a quite heroic and time-consuming process of taking oral histories from victims and survivors of the mass killings. And it's in the recovery of these voices of ordinary Indonesians that we are going to see the most important changes in the national narrative, in part because victims and survivors feel now able to tell their own stories in ways which they never could before. Uh, secondarily, there have been a number of initiatives by, by human rights organizations to investigate 
and report on the mass killings and other episodes of mass violence during the Suharto era. Uh, but a couple of the most important initiatives have been undertaken by the Indonesian government itself. So in 2012, uh, the Indonesian human rights organization, Komnas Ham, the National Human Rights Commission, issued a report that had taken nearly four years to complete and included hundreds of interviews and, and in-depth investigations, which concluded that the killings of 1965 and 1966 were crimes of the state, carried out under the direction of the Indonesian Armed Forces, uh, and that the Indonesian government bore responsibility for the, for the killing of many hundreds of thousands of Indonesians. This report was dismissed by the Indonesian Attorney General, uh, who uh, criticized the government's own Human Rights Commission uh, and suggested that the Indonesian government, and in particular the army, had nothing to apologize for. Um, there have been other similar efforts by the Indonesian government to occasionally create forums for discussing the mass killings and discussing uh, new narratives of, of the events of 1965 and 1966. But every time uh, these have happened, they have been met with great resistance on the part of uh, military officers as well as, as Islamic organizations. And so the task has somewhat fallen to civil society and non-governmental organizations. For example, the Indonesian People's Tribunal, which was a collaborative effort on the part of many Indonesian human rights organizations and their Western allies, who in the fall of 2015 um, carried out a series of hearings in The Hague, uh, which brought forth experts and, and witnesses and survivors of the mass killings to tell their stories. The Indonesian People's Tribunal published a report uh, to great fanfare inside Indonesia, which made recommendations uh, for for a truth and reconciliation commission and other measures which would help to um, which would help to further expose the the events of 1965 and 66 and restore some measure of of uh, dignity to those who had been victimized by the killings and imprisonment which followed the 19 uh, the September 30th 1965 movement uh, and these efforts have helped to raise much greater awareness on the part of the Indonesian public than had existed before. Um, the release of Joshua Oppenheimer's film, The Act of Killing, in 2012 was similarly important uh, in helping to create a forum for Indonesians to begin publicly debating and, and seeing Indonesians talking freely about the 1965 killing, something which many Indonesians had never seen before in public. And so when the film first came out, it occasioned shockwaves among many Indonesians who had only ever seen the government narrative of the 1965 killings and were frankly horrified to see Indonesians speaking quite frankly about murdering their neighbors in the name of anti-communism uh, and and being lauded as heroes on television and in public settings uh, by their fellow Indonesians for having carried out these mass killings against against Indonesian citizens uh, who in many cases happen to be their own neighbors. And the release of this film and the public discussions that it has helped to provoke, I think, has created a, a growing awareness, especially among young Indonesians, of the need for a fundamental reconsideration of some of the most important narratives of Indonesian history, which they feel 
they have not received under the current Indonesian government and under the education educational institutions, uh, which have which have governed um, public education since the 1960s when Suharto first came to power. Brad, you've played a important role in increasing the the base of primary source evidentiary um, material for understanding this period. Can you can you tell us a little bit about um, the, your project at the National Security Archives? Sure. In two thousand three, I founded a project to declassify. U.S. government documents concerning Indonesia and East Timor during the reign of General Suharto. Uh, I came to this project um, through my experience as an activist working to change U.S. policy towards Indonesia to support self-determination for East Timor and to support democracy in Indonesia uh, in the 1990s, uh, hoping to uh, reduce U.S. military support for the Suharto regime and to support pro-democracy pro-democratic forces who were seeking uh, to democratize the country. So since 2002, the project has declassified tens of thousands of formerly secret documents concerning U.S.-Indonesian military relations and human rights abuses committed by the Indonesian government in East Timor, in Aceh, in West Papua, and across the archipelago uh, during the reign of General Suharto. Last year, the National Declassification Center, which is an arm of the U.S. National Archives, began a project to process uh, about 30,000 pages of of documents from the U.S. Embassy in Jakarta from 1964 to 1968. And myself and a number of colleagues reached out to the National Declassification Center and offered to help them digitize this, this enormous collection of documents. Uh, in exchange for for making them publicly available. So we digitized these 30,000 pages of of documents uh, and put them into a format where they could be read by journalists and scholars. And our hopes in doing this was to make this rather unique collection of documents available to to Indonesians as well as people outside of Indonesia uh, who we're interested in in learning more about one of the most important periods in Indonesian history. And we were very pleased to have released these documents last fall, shortly after the anniversary of the September 30th movement, uh, and pleased to see that they provoked widespread discussion in Indonesia, uh, especially among younger people who, who were thrilled to see documents from the United States government that they couldn't get from their own government. And one of my hopes is that the continued release of such documents by the National Security Archive and by other organizations will help to support the ongoing efforts by Indonesian civil society organizations to demand transparency on the part of their own government about the events of 1965 and 1966, as well as other episodes of human rights abuses during the Suharto period. And this is really an ongoing struggle inside Indonesia itself. Uh, the Indonesian government is is rarely transparent in acknowledging uh, such human rights abuses, 
and Indonesians have very little access to government secrets and very little access to government documents concerning these kinds of events. And so I think it's really incumbent upon those of us who uh, who live and work in places like the United States to do whatever we can to try and support the efforts of Indonesians who are engaged in and ongoing efforts to try and demand greater truth and accountability from their own government as we demand from our own. What ways do you think this, these new documents, this new research will revise our understanding of the role in the, of the U.S. in the killings? Well, I think these documents confirm in greater detail some things we already knew. First, that the United States was well aware from the moment that the Indonesian army began carrying out these killings in October of 1965, uh, that the army was intending to engage in a campaign of mass murder. Secondly, these documents confirmed that the U.S. was aware that the people being murdered were in no way involved in the September 30th movement and were being murdered simply for their alleged membership in or support of a legal political party, the Indonesian Communist Party. Thirdly, for some Indonesians, these documents have shown that that a number of political figures whom many Indonesians had revered as, as supporting human rights were actually enthusiastic backers of the killings in 1965 and 1966, including one of the founders of Indonesia's first human rights organization, a very prominent uh, attorney named Adnang Buyang Nasution. Um, and I think that the revelations that prominent Indonesians were politically supportive of the killings has raised lots of uncomfortable questions about the role of more moderate Indonesians in supporting this campaign of mass murder. Uh, these documents have also shown and supported the research of others who have, who have demonstrated that Indonesian Islamic organizations played a very important role at the top levels of their national leadership in encouraging the murder of alleged communists as a sort of religious duty among Indonesian uh, Muslims. And I think that this uh, raises very uncomfortable questions about the role of, of religious leaders in Indonesia in the same way that they would in the United States, uh, who use uh, religion as, as a justification for encouraging violence against their fellow citizens. I think it would be worth uh, repeating where people can find these documents if they want to look at them. Yeah, anyone who is interested in reading these documents can go to the website of the National Security Archive. Uh, you can just Google National Security Archive Indonesia, and you will come to the webpage for the Indonesia Documentation Project. And there's, uh, for um, for instructors, uh, educators out there, there's a very well um, kind of narrated set of of uh, documents that you could you could uh, put new even new students towards where they're 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 indexed and their their descriptions and abstracts of of questions to think about. So it's uh, it's uh, I think it's more than just uh, a source of um, of documents for which it is importantly, but there's also uh, uh, I think a, a a place that you could um, that I know I've pointed students at who were who were new to the subject that were able to do some really great um, document uh, source analysis, kind of looking at important questions and then summary and other um, other materials that kind of explain key documents as well. 
We'll go ahead and ask. So what's uh, what's coming down the what's coming down the pipeline? What can we expect to see next uh, in your work or in the National Security Archive? Well, May 2018 is the 20th anniversary of the ouster of of Suharto uh, by Indonesian pro democracy forces, and we will be making available to the public several hundred U.S. documents concerning the overthrow of Suharto in May of 1998. Uh, some of which are giving new details into events surrounding Suharto's ouster, as well as providing an inside look at the formation of U.S. policy at this really pivotal moment when the U.S. decided to stop backing Suharto after nearly three decades of enthusiastic support for Asia's longest-running dictator. Well, on behalf of the Center for Southeast Asian Studies, uh, let me thank you for coming to our campus, and we hope to see you again. Crossroads would like to thank Tommy Brown for today's music and the Chi Yu for production assistance. 谢谢您的收听，我们下次再见。